2: Morris speaking welcome to episode 153 of love that album podcast proudly part of the pantheon podcast network devoted to music discussion podcasts happy start to 2022 well we all know that the world's not exactly in a wonderful place at the start of this year it's a continuation of the shit show of the last couple of years but that's as negative as i'm going to be the rest of this is going to be positive i was supposed to be recording this episode back in December of 2021, but I had some personal stuff going on in my life that did not facilitate that. So I deferred it to January of 2022. However, the episode that I was going to record this month, which was going to be a discussion of Joni Mitchell's *Hajira*, has had to be postponed to February of 2022 because of issues with one of my two partners for that episode. So they'll be available and healthy in the next month. So what have I got planned for you for this month? What was it that I could substitute in for a discussion about Joni Mitchell? Well, I was doing a bit of cleaning around the house and I came across a couple of tapes. This is going back a few months. Now, a little bit of a history. So in the mid 80s, I was going to RMIT here in Melbourne and that fine institution had a radio station, an on-campus radio station, which basically was, I mean, in some ways it was no big deal because it didn't go over the air. It was just played out over the campus. But, you know, it was still fun. I got to play records every week and, you know, even if one or two people listened, well, that's great. But even if they didn't, I got to talk and play all the music that I wanted to do. So another thing about me is that in the early 80s I became obsessed with the Australian slash British supergroup Sky and if you go back to the early days of Love That Album podcast you'll hear a discussion about this band between myself and my great friend Michael Persch uh, and we also did what was then a current interview with the band's drummer Tristan Fry so being at the student radio station, it was called 3ST allowed me the opportunity occasionally to get an interview with whichever musician I was uh, interested in trying to get an interview with not very often and when I heard that Sky were coming to town on a number of occasions I used the opportunity that I was at 3ST to see if I could track down interviews with uh, members of the band and this happened on about three occasions so I mean I was what 18 years old at the time and to be able to meet my musical heroes was something that was really super exciting for me. Come to 1984 and one of the band's members a superstar in the classical guitar world in his own right John Williams had left the band now for those of you in the US who only associate the name John Williams with the composer of many Spielberg and George Lucas films and many other films this is not that John Williams this guy was a superstar in the classical guitar world him him, and Julian Bream were the two big head honchos in uh, the revival as I said of uh, classical guitar. I mean, well, I guess it could be said that, you know, Andres Segovia was the guy who probably single-handedly revived classical guitar in the 20th century. But John Williams was his student and was his prodigy. John Williams was actually originally born here in Melbourne, but moved over to England to play around Europe. As much as we like to claim him as our own, I guess that the opportunities for classical guitar virtuosity were not so big here in Australia in the 1950s or the 1960s. So his father, took him to London and eventually he got to play and learn from Andre Segovia. So, as I said, that John Williams is a big name in the classical guitar world, as was Julian Bream. And of course, there are many, many other guitar players since then who've also carried on that mantle. But these are the two big guys in my musical life. So the opportunity to speak to anyone from Sky was a big, exciting thing for me. And in 1984, as I said, John Williams had left the band. His final album with the band was their sixth recording called Cadmium. What you're going to hear is two separate interviews The first one is an interview that I did with Tristan Fry. And later on in the interview comes uh, the band's keyboard player for the latter years, a guy called Steve Gray. That was recorded, yeah, as I said, in 1984, maybe about March of 1984. And I took the recording gear down to the Hilton Hotel here in Melbourne where they were staying and spoke to them in the lobby. And so you'll hear a lot of background noise. John had, as I said, just left the band a few months prior and this was the first Sky Tour of Australia without John Williams in the lineup. And they had another couple of guys. They didn't take over John's place. As is explained in the interview, they just decided to have the four remaining core members plus any other pickup musicians that they wanted to have along for the way, just to add some different texture. And I think on the tour after this one, they had Rick Wakeman. He is, yes, fame and solo music fame and that was an amazing tour but this wasn't that tour so for the first interview I'm talking with Tristan Fry the drummer and Steve Gray the piano player of Sky and we're talking about a whole range of things uh starting off with discussion about why John Williams had left the band you will hear a couple of other questions asked by another voice that voice belongs to David Green who was my manager at 3ST, an engineering student at RMIT at the same time that I was at RMIT. He was also a massive Sky fan, so who was I to say, well, no, I'm doing this interview by myself. He got me the interview, so I figured, oh, well, okay, you can ask some questions too. And then I can't remember if it was later 1984 or sometime in 1985, no later than 1985 for sure. The tape's not labeled, so I can't be 100% about this. John Williams did his first solo tour of Australia since after leaving Sky. And once again, I had the opportunity to go and speak with my musical hero. I went to speak to him in his room at the hotel he was staying at in Melbourne at the time. I think it might have been the Hyatt on Collins or somewhere like that. And we spoke once again about his recollections of why he'd left Sky, what he hoped to achieve going forward. It was just really, really exciting stuff for me at the time. Now, before we go into these interviews, I should warn you that the sound quality of these tapes are not terrific. My ability to clean the tapes up is very limited. I'm still presenting these to you because it's still audible. You know, you can still understand what's going on. And I'd like to give a special shout out to uh, my great friend, Peter Anzaladis. I haven't had a cassette deck in a long, long time, a working cassette deck. Peter did, and he quite generously loaned it to me so I could rip these tapes into my computer, clean them up as best i I could which you know middle is not all that great as i said but i'm grateful to him because of his generosity i'm able to make these old interviews available for your oral pleasure as quentin tarantino would have it now the other thing i should also state here is i was 18 years old at the time i recorded these interviews i was not a media student i was studying electronics so you know, it's not like i had sort of worked out how to ask great questions So there's that. But stick with these interviews because Tristan and Steve and John all gave fantastic responses to my pretty lame sort of questions. I'd like to hope that since those days and having done a lot of podcasting in the interim, that I know how to do better research and I know how to ask better questions of my interview subjects. But regardless of whatever it is that I ask, uh, the gents Gave some amazing information and told a few home truths, especially with John. I can't really recall hearing too many interviews where musicians were as honest as these gents were. So I'm not going to spoil anything as to what they're talking about. Just carry on and listen. I hope that you enjoy this slice of history. I mean, these interviews, 1984, 1985, that's um, do the arithmetic, 37 years from the time I'm releasing this, 37, 38 years. Listen to these, and then I'll be back at the end of the show to talk about February of 2022, so episode 154. I mean, look, you've probably already guessed now. If my two guests, Shane Pacey and Kerry gatley Fristo, are available and are well, we'll get on with our discussion about Joni Mitchell's Hajira next month. All right, but anyway, stick around. Listen to these interviews. Joanne will give you the contact details now. And as I've been saying all along, please... Cut me some slack for the audio quality and my inane questions. I think that the historical value of these discussions and the answers that they gave make this a well-worthwhile listen. I'll speak to you shortly. This is Morris. You're listening to episode 153 of Love That Album.
0: I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor.
3: We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion.
4: Why did John leave? Was it out of dissatisfaction with classical content? No, no, I think he just, he's got a lot on his plate at the moment. He decided
3: he was going to take, a fair while ago, he decided he was going to take a year off anyway. I think he just wanted to pursue other things and all kinds of things in his life were going on kind of thing, and just wanted to have a rest. So he did, and we said right from the beginning of the group, as you probably remember, that if anybody wants to it in, then they must, without any hard feelings or any worries,
4: you know, because France left, as you know, yeah. two or three years back. Will John be doing anything solo within the immediate future?
3: Um, I don't know. No, I think he's he's sort of pursuing this thing of having the year off, you know, and just seeing what, what happens after that.
4: He's just sort of having a sit back and think what to do next, kind of. Mm. Judging from last night's concert at the Melbourne Concert Hall, the audience seemed to take rather well to the two new players, Lee and Ron. Have audiences all over Australia been reacting as enthusiastically? Oh yes, absolutely, which has been great.
3: I mean, the whole thing is that, uh, just so there's no confusion, they're not new members of the band. The whole point of the band now is that it's a four-piece with people coming and going as and when required. So I'm there's thinking. no guarantee they'll be on the
4: next album? No, no, it definitely. Will. It's a, it's a guest's business. Could you tell us a bit about their musical background? Well, I don't know much about their musical background. <laughs> I don't
3: know much about my musical background. <laughs> no, Ron and Lee are both session players at the moment. Uh, Ron was with a group called Backdoor years ago. Not that many years ago. I think they toured the States quite a bit. It was quite a progressive rock-jazz group. Mm-hmm. Um, then he's done a lot of session work on backing things country, and kind of things. young Lee's in the same position, really.
4: Yeah.
5: We, we meet a lot on the Valdunican show. We've both playing. Speaking of session work, I understand that you're probably more involved in doing session work than any other member of the band. Is that uh, good, right? Yes, possibly at the moment, yes. yes. I know Herb, Herbie, I see his name cropping up on, on albums That's all right. over the place. That's right. Um, what sort of session work do you do mostly?
3: Um, all kinds. I mean, it's all faceless stuff. Stuff that you, you know, don't get... A credit, for it, which I probably just as well. But it's good fun, which is great. There's a lot of TV, film stuff. See, I mean, if you think about it, all day long you're listening to music on TVs, on films, apart from albums and uh, jingles, that kind of thing. And you never know who those people are that're playing. But there is a team of people who are actually
5: spending their lives doing that you know it's a couple of years ago now i saw uh clicking through the channels on television and went past the i think it was bbc children's music program right and it was uh, an introduction to percussion right uh, although the two presenters and yourself explaining the different Percussion instruments. Right. Did you enjoy that sort of work? Very much indeed. Yeah, because it gives you a, uh, a completely different
3: angle on what you're playing is and and that kind of thing. I so think what was interesting, then, I would I would never do such a thing to an audience. I know I can't do it to an audience. I can play to an audience, but I wouldn't stand up and talk to them you about wouldn't, percussion you wouldn't instruments. Do clinics or. No, no, unless I was really sick. <laughs> No, no, but uh, whereas I can, I find you can go on TV and potentially speak to millions more people, or quite a lot more people, because it's just that camera. It's fantastic. You don't know, notice that sort of whole audience bit, you know, which is a bit of a worry. These are the timpani, uh, the largest drum makes the lowest sound and the smallest drum makes the highest sound. These are the Korean temple blocks. There again, the largest one makes the lowest sound and the smallest one makes the highest sound.
4: The last two that the band did, of Australia, resulted in a live album. That's right. Did it turn out to your expectations as well as you wanted it? No, I think it did. From our point of view, we felt quite happy with it, actually. I mean, we felt the
3: feelings of playing to a live audience fantastic, you know, over here. And because
4: the audiences are great over here, and they really show their appreciation or otherwise. Would you know who drew the cover? Because the cover's really magnificent. Do you know, I don't know, I'm afraid. It's terrible, It's
5: <laughs> quite <laughs> like it. a contrast. You, your previous album covers, 1 through 5, right? And then go to that very plain,
4: quite stark yellow cover on the, on cadmium. the cadmium. Yes, why, that's right. Why the non-sequential thing? Why, why not? Sky 6. Well, we, we thought about it, and then we thought, well, perhaps we ought to call it something this right. time.
5: Yeah. I yeah. mean, you were getting that way. It was Sky 4 forthcoming. That's it. Sky 5 I live. Believe. And now it's totally away. Nothing. <laughs> but uh, yeah,
3: I don't know why. It's just one of those things, you know, we have band meetings and all that kind of thing to decide these things. And actually we sit down and have loads of cups of tea, coffee, and go around in circles sometimes. And very often what you end up with is really not what you started out with. But by then you're so tired, you've got to decide on something. <laughs>
4: I'll ask you a couple of questions about the new album itself. My two favourite pieces, yours, uh, then then and now, I'd I'd say is one of the most beautiful tracks I've heard the band do. How did you come to write that one?
3: Well, funny thing, I sat down... Well, not so funny perhaps, but... (laughs) I sat down in uh, the back room a long time ago in the flat and just sort of did the first theme of it and then left it completely it, and it wasn't until we were doing this album and I was thinking oh, I want to get down to doing something so some writing and I got back in the room and I picked up this piece of manuscript and I thought wait a minute <laughs> I played it again and then found immediately that a middle section came and I suddenly thought wait a minute that's alright could work you know so and it's funny how things sort of either fall off or they don't. That's why it's called now and then. No, then and now. (laughs) Because
4: it was then and now it's now. (laughs) Well, Kevin claims you don't know the difference. I know, well I don't actually. (laughs) Uh, It could be now and then as well. (laughs) Here's the part where you have to be Steve now. My other favourite piece on the album is Son of Hotter. Right. Did Steve start out with the idea to write that as a sequel or did the tune just pop into his head and thought it made a good son? I've got a
3: feeling he started it out with the idea of doing a sequel because we were doing Hotter every night. And I think we'd all decided that perhaps we should give it a rest. But on the other hand, the format of the piece was a good format for a sort of ending piece of a concert. Because one has to think in terms of, of doing a concert piece, or concert pieces, as well as the recording. In fact, if anything, we think more of concert pieces than we do of recording pieces. So we often end up with pieces that are much too long to put on records.
4: The live version for this Sky Five album. I think the guitar solo right of Kevin's was edited anyway. Was it? I was listening to it and it just sounded like it started too abruptly. It sounded like oh, this has been cut. Right. But I'm not too sure. I'm just speculating. Could have been speculating. Speculating. <laughs> I can't remember that far back.
5: there <laughs> has been. A, has been. In over the sequence of albums, yes. the pieces have got less the recorded pieces are less concert pieces and more recording pieces. They're getting shorter just uh, as a general over the last two perhaps, or three albums. Two or three albums. Because for instance, if you go back to Sky Two and Three, they're yes. made up of seven, eight, ten minute. Tracks. Right. It's a look bit cadmium. I think the longest is four and a half or five minutes. I don't think so. No, no. I think
3: because we've got Telex from Peru, which yeah, is it's quite it's a long, And seven and a half. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think what you're probably thinking uh, is that the likes of Where Opposites Meet and FIFA, which were really long pieces, the twin, you know, they were what eighteen or twenty minutes yeah, worth. Yeah. We haven't perhaps done one of those recently. Apart no from particular. The well, yes, the animals was a long one. Scipio was a long one too, which was on. Oh, that, one that that's one? that's very early, though, sky Yes, too. was it? Yes, Scotty. Scott but yeah, and the animals is a long one. And there's no particular reason for that. It's just either one has a piece. That's it. That's it. I mean, Herbie at the moment, and and Kev, I think, have got an idea that they'd love to do a
4: piece called Australia, or something like that. Which oh, will probably end up. You had that. a long end, you know. Oh, you had that medley, tiny kangaroo dance sport with tuba. With the tuba, s- that's right. It was tuba oh, rude. Yeah. yeah. I heard a few in the background, a few patriotic tunes. Yeah. I was rather pleased last night when I heard you do the two Francis Monkman pieces, Cannonball and FIFO, because I mean I enjoy all the members of the band's compositions, but I'd say Francis's were the the more classically orientated, yeah, yeah. complex things. What what made you decide to pull it out of the closet?
3: Well. like, all our pieces never really went into the closet. It's just that because one's constantly doing fresh material, <clears> that the one then has to play it to give it a good chance for the audience and for ourselves as well, to play it, to play it in. And therefore, uh, the older pieces obviously take a bit of time out for a while. And uh, just when we were coming away, we thought, well, what do we want to do for this trip? And we went through, obviously, the whole list of stuff, you know what I mean? And uh, we thought, well, FIFA, we haven't done for ages, and great to do again, and we were going to do FIFA instead of the animals, uh, because that's a long piece as well, but we in fact decided that we want to do the animals as well. Mm-hmm. you know It's a funny business when you sit down and try and organize a concert. you know it's, it, I'm terrible at it, but some of the boys in the band are great. you know they really sit down and they can actually and listen every number through in their mind's eye as it were and think now feel that will the, the feel things. of the whole thing so that that one will go good there but then you need to have this one here okay. to what's it and even when you do the first couple of concerts, like we did, we had to change around a couple of pieces once we'd actually started playing, because there was just something
4: about it that wasn't right, you know what I mean? So we had to move I one know, piece just to another. I noticed from the programme there was one track of Kevin's from the new album, which it was, was listed in list no, right. the programme, which was off, yeah. it was off. That was because... <laughs> you probably also noticed that KP, Sister
3: Rose and KP2, which were KP2's... Oh, you They were switched. Well, we switched them for musical reasons because we just realised immediately that it wasn't working. That wasn't didn't feel right. But then, having switched it, Kev's piece of that new album, Fair, yeah, just couldn't fit in suddenly to where its new position would have been.
4: So we just had to, yeah, unfortunately, give it the elbow on the crying mm-hmm. poor Kev crying. Off. Well, you, I tell you, you should let him do Ride of the Valkyrie. He's very upset about it. Yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> but for different reasons, <laughs> not for musical reasons. Oh, <laughs> tell me, more. Yeah. on the last tour, you came up with a novel sing along thing the bathroom song. the idea for that i think he was sitting in the bath (laughs) weren't (laughs) he?
3: i don't know actually i think um it was just a sort of little whim Mm. whim or wheeze whim wheeze Mm. to sort of you know do a little bit of singing or whatever it was quite fun because i think we did it here like this where we'd started the second half with
4: it didn't we yeah well I remember Herbie, Herbie came on stage that's while right. well, the lights no, no, were still up. no one was looking at him. When I heard the piano playing, I thought I was just a technician right. doing something. That's right. And then gradually it sort of became the tune, yeah. And then the, crystal and the crystal ball. The crystal ball coming down, that's right. Have any of the group been pursuing any solo ventures since your last play?
3: Well, we've all been pursuing our own solo careers, is it? <laughs> Which, as you know, in Kevin's case is... A fair amount of writing. Steve, of course, is totally writing. Really, his hobby, as he says, is to come and play concerts. You know, because he he had actually at one stage given up playing professionally because he just found it too much to be writing all the time and not playing. Whereas he gets out now, he gets out the playing, the playing out of the system by coming along with us a lot. You know. And uh, who else is there? Herbie. That's right. He's got his own little studio now in. West Hampstead. When I say little it really is minute. Mm. But he sort of has local folks who come in and do things and they can rent the studio. It's not a sort of money making thing, but just a sort of again a fun thing, somewhere to try out things. And so he's sort of pretty tied up with that. He does a few sessions and things, but mostly to say hello to the lads, you know what I mean? Because you miss the lads if you don't see them Mm. in our
4: sessions. Who would be your favorite drummers and percussionists, guys who really influence your playing? I must be honest, I did not really influence
3: my playing because that sort of preconceives the idea that you can actually do some of what they do, and I can't, you know. But people like Buddy Rich and Louis Bellson, Joe Morello, people like that, I mean, are just fantastic players. And the likes of me don't even start with them, you know what I mean? What, what we do is different. Yeah. You know, it's 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 sort of a completely different area, really. But they are fabulous players.
5: In popular music,
4: yes. Are there any yeah. drummers, percussionists who you think are outstanding? Oh, we can we can extend it now to keyboard players too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too. Well, they all are, really. But and Be- for people
1: people who stand out in your mind. That bloke with the police, I like, think he's a fantastic drummer. And Yeah. Yeah, he really opens that band up and you know, mm. makes it work.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you must get up more often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a lot of guys that you won't have heard of back home in England, particularly Barry Morgan, Clem Cattini, Harold Fisher. Powell Fisher. I,
4: actually, I have heard of Barry Morgan. Have I you, forgot,
3: who's he, a, he was on, on the Blue Rick Wykeman Wa- album. Right, album right. but he was with Blue Mink when Herbie was with Blue Mink. I mean, he's a just great player you know and like i say again uh, opens it way up you know but you don't normally hear these folks because they're they're doing session work or whatever
4: i noticed last night that the bands playing naturally stood out but it was helped a lot along by the great lighting and oh, and, and the we've yes. been uh, nowhere without the, it and the audio <laughs> and the audio work how much work goes into all that i don't know i mean we we we
1: tend to, uh, there's a saying in England that you don't buy a dog and bark yourself, you know, so we, we sort of hire what we think are the best people and let them get on with it and say, look, that's your department, you do it, we'll be there on the night. And if you're there on the night, that's great too. We can wait. <laughs> well, I'm quite fortunate actually, because of, uh, I've actually seen the band, you know, like, because the original keyboard player was Francis Monkman. And I went to see the band, not knowing I was ever going to be in it. So I've actually
4: seen the light show and heard the sound from up front. And it's terrific. And, uh, Usually, in mean, newspapers and the media and the like, the band has been praised for excellent musicianship. However, I recall there was one occasion, there was a, a music review panel on a television program down here. But the format is they show film clips and there's a, a panel of people who think they can rated and it was at the time when the animals part one the single came out and it was described as muzak airline music kind of thing and you know it wasn't wasn't valid oh. even in there uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh that's fine how do
1: you react to that kind of criticism well no one's gonna please anyone all the time I mean that's fine it doesn't worry it's, if you think it's music, then it's music. It's, it's quite simple and, yeah. just, It's just no problem, really.
3: Everybody used as music, when you think about it. The Frank Sinatra, you name it, kind of thing, in various forms. I mean, if you just turn on the radio any time of the day, you're actually being blasted with music, which is probably called the Top of the Pulse or whatever, at the time. You know what I mean? I mean, even the most avant-garde composers uh,
1: working in the Western world at the moment still end up as background music to television documentary. I mean, music's always yeah. subservient to pictures in that yeah. sense. Of, yeah.
3: In fact, in a way, our situation is sort of trying to bring music as an instrumental situation into a visual side of things, and actually trying to put on a show with it. Not a show, but making it acceptable in some sort of way, rather than just sitting in a hotel lobby and hearing music playing constantly and not being aware of it. I mean, when you listen to that sort of music, music and all that, some fabulous playing going on, whether you like the music or not. The actual musicians there are playing fantastic and it's rather sad in a way that
1: people are not aware of it. I must be honest, I can live without it quite a lot of the time. The actual music as music, apart from the fact I make a living out of it, which I'm not going to go into.
4: Yes. Not the kind of stuff you'd... Buy from a record store and take him to listen.
1: To it. No, not only that, sometimes it's pollution. Like if the other day, we were up at the swimming pool at the hotel and it was great, the sun was shining, the wine was flowing, the lobsters were on the table. The music was
5: totally unnecessary.
1: And you didn't need the music, and it was just it was an interruption to everything else that was going on. And that's a different story.
4: I noticed la- there was last year an, an album of yours that came out in which you covered some some Beatles tunes. Or Did that come out? Did it? TV special. Oh, exciting. How'd you get involved with, with that? Was well, it a the... project you had in mind or were you? No,
1: it was a strictly a job of work. The people that I write for, who are affiliated to ATV Music, just said, look, the strange that may seem, the Beatles stuff is starting to not earn us as, as much money as it used to. So, how about just doing an album just for the radio stations? And it was all part of a very complicated union deal involved with. British radio stations who are lumbered by needle time you know they, they, if they play records their sort of needle time alliance is going down every record they play mm. so they said we'll, we'll have a, an album that shouldn't be on sale so as far as I'm concerned it was never on sale in the UK it was just done strictly as an internal mm. deal mm. you know but um, obviously I mean they saw a market for it elsewhere Yeah, I'd heard something was happening over here but I didn't realise it had been released or anything I think another idea of it was to sell it through department stores in the States, but I really don't know much about it. I mean, I just
4: went off, did the job. It was something that kept me off the streets for a couple of weeks. What are your musical plans after you're through with Sky commitments for this tour? I'm writing a cantata with Georgie Fame, which is uh, being performed next
1: year as part of an anniversary celebration in Holland for a radio-tv station, station. It sounds heavy, but it's not. I mean, it, it'd be very much in sort of his bag and my bag, and sort of jazz, rock-oriented sort of thing. But it's very orchestral as well. There's a large choir and a large orchestra. I do quite a lot of work for these Dutch people and get to write some quite off-the-wall things, you know. It's nice, you know, it keeps your brain
3: ticking over. There's so much work for the Dutch. It's almost Dutch. Dutch.
4: No, no. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> it's almost bad as Herbie's joke about about the cat being the locksmith. Oh, no, oh, it's right. not easy. Yeah. Bolting out the doors. I See? I say try laughing to that every night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: I was trying to say last night to, you'll probably remember it. Marimba. I, I As in moomba, you see. But oh. I, was, I thought the word was
5: marimba. And I went berserk. Couldn't yeah. work it out at all. Oh, oh well. Sorry about that. On the current album, admin. There isn't a piece which was written by John. Did it just work out that way, or was that on purpose? He actually refused. Um, We had to twist his arm an awful lot to get um,
1: Antigua onto Sky 5 Live Mm. because he he sort of didn't really want to. He he feels, I think, in the company of more established writers, like, say, Kevin Mm. and myself, who can actually Mm. make a living at it. He feels very shy, which I would, you know, if I was sort of Mm. in the same position. And we said, look, you know, come on, John, check one out, because, you know, they're always lovely and everything. But he just, at that point, he sort of said, no, not this time. And, you, you know, you don't push. Mm. And uh, if he feels comfortable not doing it, well, it's, it's okay. There are no rules,
4: you know, there's no, no sort of... Yeah. Ah, well, thank you very much, both of you, for um, taking the time out and not at all. seeing not a few... Yeah, sorry, I, I didn't realise
1: you were down here. I was, I was just upstairs in the old room waiting for the old phone calls. You know? yeah. They you because Through the
3: hotel. Yeah. Well, they didn't
1: know. No. Well then, oh,
3: gosh,
1: they must have got the wrong room, mustn't
5: because I was sitting by the old yeah. load of Cologne uh, oh, you know, for
6: sorry,
5: mate, half an hour. No problem. Are you getting all this? <laughs> yeah. Oh well, <laughs> yes. We'll, we'll edit this out later. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah,
4: it, it comes out in the comes out in <laughs> the mix. <of> Most <laughs> interesting part of the interview the wash. Oh, sorry about this. No, no it's not good. Do you want to start again? Yeah, what we had here was mere speculation. I'll ask you for sure. One of my favourite tracks on the Cadmium al- Cadmium album is Son of Hotter, which uh, you wrote. Did you start off with the idea of having a sequel, or did the tune just come to your head and think this is very hottish? It was entirely down to the fact that we were just getting a
1: bit tired of playing hotter, but like the idea of it, you know, we just wanted to change the tune, that was all. So it was, it was written to order, more or less. I must be honest, I don't like the version on the album. Uh, I was sort of in charge of it, and I sort of I overproduced it, layered it with too many synths, and all the sort of raw energy that works on stage isn't there on the album. Yeah. It's, it's very, very much a stage piece, but uh, it's just lurking at the back of the album for you to hear it.
5: Actually, I kind of thought of something else. What, each of you, do you prefer, I'm not speaking in terms of working, say, with the band, but in writing or performing, do you prefer more classically oriented pieces, or more I mean, upbeat? Uh, perhaps jazz or R and B type
3: yes, I must say I don't prefer either any mm. of them. I mean, if, to me, I don't know if Steve's the same, but <laughs> it's a bit like you know, reading a book. Whatever you're reading at the time, or whatever you're playing at the time, is the thing that you're really quite wrapped up in. Mm. It might sound silly, but even if it's only a two-minute throwaway piece, it's you are wrapped up in it and enjoy yeah. it. I mean, when you're playing tuba smarties, that's the only thing that exists mm. in the world is tuba
1: smarties. You're not thinking bloody hell i should be playing
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> <Speed> over
4: <open> fave <laughs> yeah one eight one two or so cool, funny isn't it last night i noticed that with ron Asprey's sax being added right and and with the flute during sahara you had a more jazzy feel were you after that or well, we knew that that would come from a saxophone especially yeah. Ron.
1: But it wasn't, in fact, intended. I mean, it wasn't like we go for a jazzy feel left and we go for Ron. I think more the thought was what John gave to the band and what we valued greatly was was the human voice, even though it was expressed through a guitar. And however wonderful all the synths are and all like, the electric guitars and all that thing, part of the contact with the audience comes through the one to one, you know. And we thought, well, we don't want to go for another guitarist in the sense that Lee is not a replacement for John, you know, because you don't replace John Williams. In a way, you don't replace any. Obviously, you sort of you look at what the opportunity is given to you by the departure of one member and where you can go. So really, we were thinking in terms of still having that human one-to-one contact expressed through a different medium. And the fact that it it turned out to be a sort of jazz medium is is slightly irrelevant. This is definitely that's it. That's
4: it.
5: Thank Thank you very much. A little round of
3: applause.
6: Was it for musical reasons that you left Sky? Yes, totally musical reasons, which were sort of talked about amongst ourselves uh, during the last year that I was with them. So we, you know, we remain really good friends and uh, we see each other in town as we always did, you know, before. before we are performed formed group. Sister what we wanted from the group musically, what we expected, such a diverge as they often do, and uh, I just felt I couldn't, you know, remain sort of conscientiously. I couldn't remain in the group as it was going. And as it was going to continue going. Mm. And so I left. Yeah, got quite, quite simple. Interestingly enough, I've been playing some new little pieces of Steve Gray's yes. just on this on this trip because he's a composer I admire enormously. And I, I always wish, although I don't like to talk about the group, they're still carrying on. It's not my yeah. business anymore but so I always wish uh, we'd played more of his music. Right. Um, and uh, so this is. Uh, one way I've got getting my own way. You know. Well, it was it was interesting those pieces uh,
4: that you played us Steve Ray's because mm. while they fit in perfectly on the guitar, it was obvious, especially so I think the first couple of pieces that they were
6: written for the piano. They had that jazzy piano feeling about them. Did they? Yes. Yeah. Was, I, was did you like them pieces? Beautiful yeah. they. Because it's an unusual idiom for guitar, i know why it's not just you know uh, uh, an idiom that's completely different from right. anything else. But there aren't a lot of pieces in that particular mould, you know. For guitar. Mm-hmm. But you're right. The first one is quite pianistic. In fact, it's quite difficult on guitar because it it, uh, it it sort of flows up and down the uh, fingerboard in a way that's quite easy on piano, but on the guitar technically it's a little awkward. I love them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the first performance. Oh, really? Yeah, first time I played them.
4: Sky, will you be making any more
6: albums in that vein, or and in the vein of albums like Changes and Travelling? Not that I know of yet. Such certainly no plans. I don't see any point in going over past ground, mm. and, and none of those things, whether it was the records like Changes and Travelling, or indeed Sky, were ever sort of premeditated uh, changes of direction. They were things that happened, as you know. We said endlessly when we did interviews, all of us in Sky, and I've said often on my own as well. Uh, they're just developments that happen as a result of, of knowing other musicians that you respect and perhaps know socially as well as musically in London. So I don't envisage any any particular you no know, new direction or change of direction. I have a group called Dominions and Friends in London which is for acoustic instruments, but mm-hmm. we we first formed that back in nineteen seventy four with a musician both keyboard player and also an friend Michael Brian Gascott and that a couple of times recently, we did a folk song record, the, the guitar as a song, song. yes, then actually that was the, we'd never actually done any concerts of those folk songs when we did the record, mm. since then we've done two tours in, uh, in 13. Was shows. that a tour that you did earlier on this year? Yeah, we did, well we did a tour last year of 13 shows, and we did seven this year, just before coming out here, actually. Mm-hmm. That group's now swollen to 13 of us, <laughs> we have a string quartet, and Chris Lawrence on bass, and uh, Gary Cattell on the percussion instruments, you know, not not drums, not a yeah, purely right. acoustic. Uh, and Richard Harvey, who's yes. composer, arranger, plays plays everything actually, but he's principally a virtuosic, but great recorder player. Right. And Fred right. is Brian Galland, mm-hmm. who plays other wind instruments. That's actually you So we, and Jerry Garcia, he's been out here. Jerry oh, we'll Garcia, good. yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. the guitarist. And, uh, we aim to continue that, but that's in no way a replacement or uh, a new thing in terms of like leaving Sky and doing that, because that existed as an acoustic chamber group for, for years. You know. Again, it's just something we do absolutely for the fun, you know, like that. we just do because we enjoy doing it so much. Are there any other
4: musicians that you haven't played with as yet that you'd really like to play
6: with? Oh, hundreds, <laughs> hundreds. Yes, I mean, I have. See, the problem is that when, when, as it were, you're in, in in the public eye, or and for the nice sense that people are interested in what you're doing, they want to know what you're going to do next. But, you know, what it does is you mention something you might want to do, and it becomes an expectation that people get impatient for, and so they say, "Oh." About that record of and you talked about last year, when is that coming out? And it's really just an idea that it might take five years to do. She so said there's a number of things that I've got plans to do, but they're very open-ended plans. That Joe Pass, you know, great jazz guitarist, I've been really, like, say, honoured as an understatement, but also just great pleasure of knowing personally. A friend for, for a few years now, and uh, we would like to do a record someday. You know, but of course the problem is you mentioned that, and before you know, we have our record companies phoning up saying, "Oh yeah, when are you going to do this? Can you do it next May? For, you know, for an August release? And ridiculous things like that, because we we haven't actually got anything together yet. We've got about two little numbers that we've played just for the fun of it together. You know, yeah. there are one or two particular things like that which I will certainly be doing in the next few years. But they're not an immediate plan. Does the music of the trio John McLaughlin, Di Meola, and Parker De Lucia interest you a little? No, I have to be honest, I, I hate talking about colleagues yeah. and, and because it, it's a very serious thing because you know, one or two people you, you meet, you admire some things they do sometimes and sometimes you know them personally and, and they're really lovely blokes. You know what I mean? They're really mm-hmm. fantastic and you just don't get off on the music. Oh. You know what I mean? And, <clears throat> So I'm not being shy and hiding behind... I, I don't actually, as it were, go wild about that kind of music at all, to be honest. Uh, I know Paco de Lucia very well. I've met him through a very good friend of mine, Paco Pena, right who's been out here, who's like a very old friend of mine in London, and, uh, and he's a great uh, friend of Paco de Lucia's. Mm-hmm. And I've spent several evenings actually talking to Paco de Lucia about what he does with mm-hmm. them, and, and trying to understand them and his part in that group, because he is an absolute genius. I think he's the, musically, I'm talking now, as far as what it gives me, he's he's the genius in that group. I don't know that he's at his best in that group, I prefer him doing his other, but it's not a style that interests me to, to realize. When it comes to improvising, whether it's free improvising or anything, I, I, I find that, that jazz this is a very broad generalization, because I'm not an improviser, I'm not a rock musician, and I'm not a jazz musician, so I can claim uh, absolute objectivity, but I, I, if complete uh, inability to do any of those things counts as objectivity, I find that jazz has it all over rock music when it comes to uh, improvising, I mean I love lots of rock, Eric Clapton is a god, I think he's wonderful, you know, but a lot of these sort of whether it's the free-form or semi-free-form rock, if like, me absolutely cold. I find it barren of musical interest. Mm-hmm. You know, j- jazz has it so many times over on all levels, spiritual, soul, invention, beauty of sound, beauty of uh, of melodic line, etc you know. And I'm, I'm a great jazz fan think, in that way. And, uh, Is that how
4: you got to play with the Cleo
6: Lane? Probably indirectly, mm. yes. I mean, because I, I met them years ago down at Ronnie Scott's jazz club. I mean, Ronnie Scott's a good friend, apart from being a very loyal colleague who's asked me to play down the club, which oh. I always appreciate, although I don't find so much time these days. Either. If a picture paints a thousand words Then why can't I paint you?
3: The words will never show you,
5: I've come
6: to know My father was a jazz guitarist, you see, so I'm not saying it's in the blood in that sense, because I'm not a jazz player, but I sort of feel what it's about, you know, and as long as people very kindly, nicely write idiomatic jazz music for me that I reproduce, in other words, I read it, and that's just as legitimate as improvising you know, with As soon as you've got musicians playing together, it has to be written down you know, you don't get the Duke Ellington band all improvising, you know, <laughs> improvised solos, but the stuff, the, the, the main form is course, written down, so, like, John Dankworth, often when I'm doing shows with, with him and Cleo, he writes he me a few choruses out of different things, and I play what he's written, you know, and that's, that's a great enough honour and pleasure, you know, in yeah. itself. Paul Hart, I remember, he was, he did, I think, the first or second tour here with John and Cleo, he he's, uh, did their keyboard playing, and he plays the fiddle as well, and what he's, uh, brilliant sort of composer, keyboard player, basically, guitar does everything. Very well known in England. Came through the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. He wrote me a piece this year in London with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, sort of concerto. Jazzy idiom in bits. Not a jazz concerto, really, but... Uh, so that sort of thing I, I like a lot. But it, it gives me a very strong predilection towards the jazz side and, and not the rock side. Although, as I say, like Eric Clapton and one or two of the, the players, the rock players, are great, of course. A
4: few months ago, only. Well, in, oh, in some newspapers uh, there was some information about Julian Brem, a player who he oh. with on a number of
6: occasions, having hurt himself in some sort of accident. Do you know anything? Oh, yes. He's, he's getting better. He's been practicing that man oh, so be is It was it was very nasty accident, yes, but uh, obviously he's been back. He's just about to go to the States for a term. Oh. So he's been having therapy and he hurt his arm badly. Right. But uh, luckily, no serious damage done. Oh, done. Will you be playing with him? We're doing a BBC broadcast in January together, just a recording of some mm-hmm. new, new arrangers. Is that stuff? going to be an international...? I don't know, but they sometimes they sell a they to other broadcasting stations. Mm-hmm. in a secret poising form? Um, do you know, I can't remember. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm known for a few things that I've particular, uh, they're not charities, I mean the charities, to the extent they're raising money, but let's say causes, political, social causes, I'm known because I've spent a lot of time with one or two in particular. So I think it's just really known to sympathise with, or to identify with a particular cause. When there's a, a fundraiser comes along, people know, and amnesty with one particular I happen to know I think going back a few years now I happen to know the director a few years ago of amnesty is a good friend of mine called David Simpson. He's actually he's been out here recently. He's now the he's the chairman of the Action Against Smoking and Action on Smoking and Health, I think it's called Ash. <laughs> Australia, it's a very big organization. Anyway, I can't remember what was my first contact with Amnesty. What happens with those things is you get to know a lot of the people, you spend the whole evening, sometimes it's a rehearsal and, and there may be you know, 10, 15, 20 people taking part and it's, it's great fun. You, know, you turn up at afternoon or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you spend the rest of the day. You might go till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And, I remember once, on that particular one, everyone had bets as to what time it would finish.
4: <laughs> uh, so,
6: oh, well, we didn't see everything in the film then? No, it was an edited version. That one with the uh, uh, Ken Campbell's uh, roadshow. Remember yeah. that? The, with the elephant? That oh. was the big <laughs> that, that went on, that wildly overran. That, that itself was about three quarters of an hour in the theatre. And it was wonderful. In fact, for that sort of entertainment, it's like a little bit out of that old 18th century street theatre. Hmm. Parisian Rimbaud-Laison-Fronte-Parody, all those streets, the mind, and the general, belongs to that era. I mean, nothing after that, anymore. That show was wonderful. You need time for it, just because you're just there. You know, you're like almost a participant. It would the be, well, here. yeah,
4: it would be a unique kind of show, mm. blending the comedy with the different style of music, so you probably would have attracted
6: That's audiences right. that you might not normally attract. The problem with that particular one is when they make the show and they make the the film, which raised a lot of money, made an enormous amount of money for Amnesty, that's to and the record. You have to curtail your artistic judgment a bit. I did a sort of duet thing with Pete Townsend, which was, a, which was a complete fiasco because the microphones weren't working. All the bit I worked out for one of the songs, it's very, very difficult to actually to mix my style with Pete Townsend's style. It's not actually, I don't think artistically it's, it's a good idea. He's a lovely bloke, you know. Yeah,
4: that we only on
6: keeps him at. Just uh, the director of uh, the chapter who's organising the show, not not John Cleese who's directing, it, but uh, Martin Lewis who's putting it together. He's a great. Pete Townsend fan. He says, "Hey, you two must do something together." And of course, it's fun to do. You know, it it, uh, it didn't work as far as I'm concerned artistically. It didn't work at all. But then it's there and it's a sort of feature of the show and it helps the atmosphere of the show, even if musically. You know. have you been an admirer of Townsend? Not never got off on that at all. I'm not a rock fan in the sense I know all that they've done. One or two of the songs are great. I mean, actually, those songs he did on that show were, were terrific, you know. I think he would have been better off doing them without me. I mean, I'm not being critical about him, you know. I think it was just an idea of doing something together and it would have been better. But I did work out one very good accompaniment for one of the songs. And I thought it was... Uh, won't get pulled again. Won't get pulled again. Was, the, was that the one
4: I was doing? That was the one that showed up on the film. I saw you playing there, but it sounded like only one guitar was playing. And considering the style of the play, I thought that must be Pete Townsend's it, it was. It was strictly... strictly so you just saw me looking
6: very busy in the background. And, yeah. I, and I thought, you know, I didn't think she would be faking it or something like yeah. that. What's well,
4: that microphone turned off?
6: Yeah. And they tried to put on the audience microphones for when they mixed the record to see if it was picking up any more of me. As far as style, mixing, I mean, Ralph McTell, his sort of ballad style, which he plays is, uh, he's a very good friend, and every now and then, if we're involved in the show together, doing you know something of a similar nature to that, if there's a couple of songs of his that I do where the style, the star mix beautifully. You yeah. know, like The Streets of London, but mm. a lovely part for a second guitar player. No? On the portrait
4: of John Williams' album that came out a couple of years ago, uh, in the cover notes you stated that Fool on the Hill and Something were your two favourite Beatles songs. Can yes. you foresee yourself doing an album
6: of Beatles Um Well, it's a very tempting idea. I don't have plans to do it, no. I, I, don't, I don't see why not at some stage, but then this. There's quite a lot of composers and songs that one would like to do like that. I don't know about specifically doing Beatles songs. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the sort of jazz standards, yeah. you know, the Gershwin, Colport, all that, but, mm-hmm. I mean, they go beautifully on solo guitar just to just do just nice acoustic arrangements of them. So there's no particular reason to do only only a Beatles collection, except that they're nice songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Some of them are great songs. I mean, you know, I don't know if there's enough to sustain the whole album. I don't know whether musically it's quite interesting. I mean, they're so tied up with the mood of the lyrics and the mm. mood of the song that one knows from the 60s. I think there's probably more interest, melodically and harmonically, in the jazz standards, if one was doing a whole album. Do you know of Leo Brauer, the Cuban composer guitarist? Well, I remember reading the name. Well, he arranged that full on the hill. I mean, that's why yeah. I mentioned that, that, that. I did on the yeah, portrait. Right. Um, it's a duet arrangement, you know, and I played both yes, right. And he's done a, a wonderful arrangement of, she's leaving home two guitars, absolutely beautiful, which he's recorded with a, on a record of duets with a Japanese guitarist called uh, Ichiro Suzuki. Yes. And he's talked of doing a whole section of Beatle duet arrangements, which we would do together on a record, you know. But then again, there's another I The, think the we companies want... call you up a bit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but much more interesting to do is duet arrangements, because you can make, see, I don't think that the actual harmonies as instrumentals are of pieces will be interesting enough to sustain one guitar on a record. So, for two guitars, could be good because you can do a lot of interesting things with the colours.
4: I decide to re-record
6: that particular version of Fall on the Hill. That, uh, I won't comment on, because that is our one and only, and the whole is history of bone of contention, we have. Because I had nothing to do with that, because oh. that was after I... That was done for that collection, wasn't it? Yes. Nothing to do with me. That was done after I left guy. I, I, I feel very bad about that. So I can admit to you in public. <laughs> That's the only thing I feel very well about, because that, that arrangement was done by Leo Brower, um, initially. Done by Labour for, for me and it was done as a guitar duet, and to redo it and synthesize the lines into, you know, it's really, I think, I felt it was a bit off. Mm-hmm. I felt it was a very commercial decision to do, simply to add attraction to it. A... In fact, that particular co- collection, they know, the, the lads in the band know this because I told them so, it's, it's not a secret, you know. Yeah. That collection is a record company selection, which I think they should have stopped, because the idea of calling something the best of Sky you know, over, what, four or five years we were together? Yeah. Five or six albums without any actual compositions of Francis Monkman or Steve Graves is absolutely, it's like something out of the loony land. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just the, uh, the, the, the two real composers. Yeah, I'm going to say, I've written lovely numbers, but the two real composers, we've have, have nothing of theirs, mm-hmm. on the best of sky. <laughs> That's an absolute travesty, Yeah.
4: your favourite musicians
6: not just to do with guitar, but any instruments in any field, field? I can't, you know, because there are so many wonderful players in all fields on all all instruments of different ages. You have your favourites, but they're like they're sentimental favourites. I don't mean they're bad because of that, but they're sentimental favourites. Like you remember the wonderful time you had, you ate caviar and vodka on a on a houseboat, I don't know, 14 years ago on holiday, you know, oh, you what know, I you remember yeah. certain things, you can't oh, then go and say caviar is your favourite food or whatever, you just have a, you know what I mean, you yeah, have a certain yeah, sort of, and also, those things stay with you because if they were great things, you'd like them, but you can't say you like them more, you know, it's full of, I mean, I could give you an example, I mean, Heifetz has always been, you know, the violinist, yeah. uh, It's just something about the, poem, the things, the whole life, history, personality. And yet, there are some pieces which I've always treasured of his. I mean, all because that he's famous for, right. you know, concertos. And Itzhak Perlman is, I suppose, the other violinist yeah. that I really admire. On I mean, two or three of the big concertos, I actually prefer his playing on them to the hybrids. But it's not like saying, Itzhak's better than Heifetz, you know? I mean, yeah. you, you can't say that I And mean, you hear young players you know, and they do something really fantastic. And, and, that, and that goes on with different forms of music, different instruments.
4: Insofar as with classical guitar playing. It's interesting how that attracts people who would not normally be interested in classical music as such. I can think of quite a few people who I know that say, oh, classical music, not my bag. But when it comes to, uh, you know, I say, well, what do you think of classical guitar playing? And that's, I say, oh, a guitar is a great instrument. Yeah, in- anything, you
6: know. Right. And they enjoy that. What do you think that might be attributed to? Well, it's a fantastic instrument. I think it's the immediacy range of expression whether it's within a particular field or over, you know, crossing several fields, areas of music. But whatever it is, it's a very immediate, it's very personal, it has a sort of, it's the touch, you know, you play it with your fingers on the strings. Mm -hmm. Even if you're using a pick sometimes, it's a very, you know, you've got both hands there. Mm -hmm. And I I think it is the lack of mechanical, you know, interruption or mechanical means there. It's a very physical instrument, you know. You touch the thing, you know, yeah, right. and that goes in the music too. And it's it's the well, it's a, it's the main surviving traditional instrument, I suppose, like flute or violin. I mean, they're refined Western developments, aren't they? The modern instruments, the wind, and the string instruments, but they are refined versions of very traditional, uh, you yeah, wind instruments, flutes, pipes all over the world, plucked instruments. Year in London, I met a, a clog dancer, one of the old uh, traditional clog dancers. You know, that's it's, it's, it's sort of step dancing. It's what yeah. tap dancing became yeah. a grew out of. It's a clog dancer, lovely Sam Sherry, beautiful. Oh, I nicknamed Clever, Clever Clogs. Yeah. and he's well, he's in his 70s, retired, lives up north of yeah. that Lovely man, came down, and sparkling, you know, twinkly. And He told me 10 years ago, there was just part of himself. who was sort of retired, just doing a little bit of step dancing. And a little bit on musical thing before it died out that uh, there was only one or two other people that were keeping it alive and he said there are now 200 clog dancing societies and uh, I think it goes generally uh, also with the uh, sort of return generally with the, the crafts and the arts a little bit back to the countryside back to the old crafts which in the 60s and 70s is very much a middle class trendy thing well it still is you know it's self conscious you know, but I think it's actually taken deeper roots you know, at times of economic, social crisis, you know, you see the, the shallowness of the values that have developed over years. We tend to be very short-sighted. You think technology or fantastic, these new things, you know, they've been developed for the last 20 years. We forget there's been a few billion years of history before <laughs> us that have done, you know, a few pretty good things, you know. I think it's depressing politically and socially what's happening, but I, I don't... I find it irrelevant, really. I think that people go wild over synthesizers and electronic music. That's fine. A lot of nice stuff comes out of it. If they like it, it's good. But I don't view it as musically very important, actually. So, instruments is still their wonderful thing to do. And more people are never getting joy out of playing themselves. It's a very interesting question, because you, you have to separate the purely musical thing from exactly what you're talking about. Because purely musically, I mean, the electronic keyboards and synthesizers, the whole field, actually can be a great help to young people learning music. You know, to the extent that it can, it, a lot of things can become readily uh, understood much quicker, without a specialized technique being developed. It can help, like older people, you know, to appreciate certain aspects of music quicker than they could without it. But that's purely musical. The, 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 the sickness, what I call the sickness, comes in when, it, when you relate it to the culture. Because it signifies that there's a lack of culture. It doesn't express anything. It's not, if you take the obvious, the, the extremely mm-hmm. Obvious and other end of the spectrum. If you take like Indian music or flamenco, you've got music which is 100% expressing a culture, and which is you know maybe a very specialised thing. And they may not, all you know, some of them may not be one's favourite music, mm-hmm. but it's a very real expression of a living culture, something which people are living in their everyday lives. You know. And it goes with the sound, it goes with the harmonic vocabulary of the instrument, of the songs that they sing, the dances they do, with synthesized electronic music, of course you're dealing with the the cultural vacuum. All all it's doing is expressing the current social, cultural vogue of the society. And if that society is in a mess, which ours is, it's not expressing very much. All it can be used is is like a mirror. It's a mirror to it, but it's not an expression of it. It's it's a a mirror to... That's why it's wonderful for background music, jingles, ads, it's just what the doctor ordered. All it has uh, is it's at the service of. It's music to be made use of. To take it back to uh, the guitar, are you doing any teaching? I like teaching in classes. I like working over a week or two weeks in, in, in you know, like a summer course or a specific period. So I usually do that once a year somewhere. The last couple of years I've, I've been at Paco Pena's school, festival, guitar school come festival in Cordoba mm-hmm. uh, in Spain and uh, you know, up to about all 80, 90 students, you know, quite a few of them ju- just auditors and a lot of them players. And I'm concentrating more and more on, on ensemble music, guitar duets, trios, and sometimes even getting everyone just to play a few simple old Renaissance dances, you know, maybe 50 of them all together, you know, uh, but mainly uh, duets and trios, m- more than solo music. This is a very good solo player coming along. you plan to teach again deaf users. I would. I want. I want to have the time out here to do more. You see, but my original plans a couple of years ago to spend three or four months a year out here back in Melbourne. I've got a baby boy now, he's two, 22, and I don't live with him. Really, so. you know, he <coughs> and his father live around the corner, so we're, we're sort of great mates and all that, which is fine, but because, therefore, he doesn't, you know, they don't travel with me, and vice versa, I don't travel with them, therefore, I don't want to be away for that long. Mm. You know, it's a purely personal thing, so... Um, trips out here, I mean, obviously, continue coming out, you know, it's lovely, I love being back, but they're only sort of like three-week trips, and it's not really long enough to get going a, a continuity, you know, of involvement. Um, I'll be back in February for a couple of weeks, and probably later next year and the year after, you know, I mean, I'll be coming back. I'm doing the music for a film up in, uh, Sydney next year, which has just got, a, uh, confirmed to being filmed in January, so I'll be out in February to look at that, and take the bits back to London, because I've never done that before.
4: The single that was released off it was Troika, and then was a track which appeared on the B-side which wasn't on the album, Why Don't We? Oh, I mean, Why Don't
6: We? Wasn't that a little piece of Steve Gray's? I think?
4: Well, the whole band was accredited with yes. the, right. Did
6: he arrange it or write it? Did it say?
4: No, it, 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 ju- it just listed each one of your names as the composer. It might have been
6: some traditional thing. I, I remember us doing no, it. It, it, yes. it, it sounded,
4: sounded very, very much back to Blues, rock and roll roots kind of, yeah. thing, which I thought was a, you know,
6: a, a departure, but from the band's normal type of music. Yeah, band, I, but you sure see, it's, it's a very very, the sky. It's a difficult thing, for, for, again, like we were talking before about the best of the sky. cadmium was down the period that uh, I was wanting to leave anyway. I don't like cadmium. I have to be honest with you. Don't like it with the record at all. And I, I, I can't remember that. I remember us recording that other track on the other side. We did two. We did a number of Steves the same time and an arrangement of uh, an old sort of... Oh of... yes, that was... On Isn't the... that funny sort of like was... finger-picking
4: style one? Um, yes, it was on the B side of, uh, well, the fall of... The,
6: their full of on-the-hill arrangement. Could they do that as a it... single? Did they? It on was, the was on the, the B side of a single. B is the why don't we? Is it that one that's sort of Chet Atkins style? Mm. One? Yeah. Yes. I remember that. I remember. Yes. It's quite fun actually. Uh, I, I, what is it? I did enjoy doing that. I do remember that. Yes, I like that. Uh, did you just think, oh, let's have a full yeah. session? or hence the title. Why? It was sort, sort of thing, you know, for a B side, B-side, to do something which is not necessarily typical of what we do a lot of times. So sort of slightly sheet, kind of you know. And that was quite fun. But generally, can can be fun. Not a subject we do. Uh, what are you planning after this tour? I've had a very very busy year. Year. I did a festival in London, Bank called Bank Summer, Summer Music for two weeks. Basically, it's been a chamber festival for the last 15, 16 years. Um, and they have a, an artistic director, as it's called, usually for three years at a time. This year was my first year. So I had a very busy year putting that together. Just two things I played in about seven of the events and, and, you know, I had to sort of generally oversee and, you know, get the whole thing together. Uh, the administration department does all the donkey work, but, you know, in terms of musically, actually, and uh, various other things, sort of, moving house and family problems and all that, so, and that's all sorted out, so I'm, I've got a slight easy time for the rest of the year once I get back. I mean, I've got a few concerts to do for Christmas, nothing, nothing really heavy, and then in the new year, I'm coming back here in February, uh, I'm playing in Perth only, I couldn't play in Perth on this trip. I've got a few concerts in Europe in March, April, and i have this South Bank Summer music and, next summer, English summer, yeah. again, and go to Spain again, just do a few concerts, so I'll be a little bit easier in the next year than I had this year. So will you be playing in Melbourne and Sydney again around this time next year, then? No. It, well, my ABC tour is always a two-yearly event, but quite apart from anything extra I might do the you know, college or the, the Arts Centre, but in fact, next year I won't be out again for, for playing, mm-hmm. for sure. I might be back at the, apart from February, I might be back at the end of the year on a, on a social, something for work.
2: you have it two interviews from 1984 possibly 1985 long before the whole idea of podcasting was a thing. I never thought that I would ever find these interviews, let alone put them out on my podcast feed all those years later. But there you go. I hope you've enjoyed them. I hope that my inane ramblings didn't offend your ears terribly much. And I hope that you got something out of listening to those wonderful musicians. Sadly, Steve Gray is no longer with us, as neither is Kevin Peake, the guitarist for Sky. Both passed away some years ago. So, just to be able to listen to Steve's voice again after all these years was quite special and or well, getting to listen to John Williams and Tristan Fry talking to me. Oh my Lord, I I can't believe just how fortunate I am. And it's evidence of just how professional these guys are, that they were happy to speak on more than one occasion to someone like myself, who is not part of the professional media, didn't work for a newspaper, didn't work for a professional radio station. I was just a fan, a very enthusiastic fan, and they let me into their lives. So exceptionally grateful to those wonderful gentlemen for uh, giving me the time all those years ago to uh, speak to them and talk about their music it meant a lot to me i might have said that a thousand times in the first part of this show all right so enough about the past let's talk about the future well at least we're going to record in the future but still talk about the past if that makes sense so as i said earlier on February of 2022, which should be episode 154, will be the long-delayed episode of the discussion between myself, Shane Pacey, and Kerry Gately Fristo talking about the album *Hajira* by Joni Mitchell from, uh, I think it's 1976. Now, the last time the three of us talked together would have been just before the pandemic when the three of us spoke about Marianne Faithful's Broken English album. So I'm really looking forward to having the three of us as a trio talking about the Joni Mitchell album so all I can say to conclude this is please be nice to each other as I always ask you to do Uh, shouldn't be too hard a thing but of course people nowadays seem to find it too much of an imposition to be nice to other people but I know that you listeners out there are not like that I've rambled on look after yourselves we'll speak next month all the best cheers